Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. In this interview, Colin McDonald discusses his experience designing parkour parks and what he's learned from the process. He shares thoughts on his creative process and inspirations before explaining more about landscape architecture and the program he is in. Colin unpacks some of his personal design and build dreams along with the realities that affect them and explores the connection between sculpture and parkour design. But first, a personal request from me to you. If you enjoy the podcast, or frankly anything else our team is doing, please share with others. I know that's the biggest compliment you can give to say to someone else, I think you will like this. I've said it before, and I'm going to keep saying it. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Good morning. Colin McDonald is a parkour athlete and coach, but is best known for his work designing public play spaces. As Parkour Vision's design director, Colin has worked on numerous projects, including gyms, parkour parks, sculpture, and has had the opportunity to present his ideas to various organizations within Seattle. Colin was recently accepted into the University of Washington's highly competitive Landscape Architecture Graduate Program. Welcome, Colin. Thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure. I'm interested in your experience of the play spaces after you've built them and people start to use them. And I'm wondering, I have the suspicions. You do you go there, like not the day after, but do you like visit them like six months later to see maybe like how the community has grown into it and how the thing has like settled into their consciousness and like what your experiences are of yeah. seeing people use your spaces? Yeah. So I think there are sort of two pretty different answers to that based on the two large public parks that are like completed and have existed for a bit that I was involved in the design of. So the first one that I was involved in that Park Revisions did was Rhodes Park in Boise, Idaho. That was the second parkour park in the U.S. And I took this big lesson away from it, um, which I'll, I'll sort of see if I can get to. Just to describe the park a little bit, the site is under a freeway overpass. And specifically, it's under two freeway overpasses because it's where the off-ramp splits. Mm-hmm. So you have a covered site, a blank space, and then another covered site. And the blank space is basically a a privately owned driveway. So the city was unable to get that land. So it had two chunks of park with an area in the middle that it couldn't develop into anything other than, than just a thoroughfare. And so during that process that the, landscape architecture firm that hired park revisions to consult on that park is called GGLO, by the way, they're a Seattle firm. And in talking with them, we we had this idea that we wanted those two sides of the park to feel distinct in the way that out in the, out in found parkour, often you'll, you'll go to a spot, you'll jam for a little bit, you'll pick up your bags and you'll move. Sometimes not that far. And the two sites, maybe there's 75 feet of interim space. With an asphalt moat between them or something. Yeah, exactly. So we, we wanted it to feel, we wanted them to feel distinct and we wanted it to feel like you could go and jam at one spot, pick up your stuff and go to the other spot. And it was like a new place. It had its own identity. And so what we ended up doing is the larger of the two spots we put, playground safety surface under the structures are a mix of wood and concrete, a lot of bars and 
it's visually pretty messy. There's a lot going on. There are a lot of angles going on. And then on the other side, we did, it's a concrete paver floor. And it, the idea was, okay, this is going to be more like a plaza, like a public area that won't read quite as much like Parkour Park. And people will be more likely to use it for just sitting on yeah, a wall, lunch. having lunch, exactly, walking through it, not necessarily experiencing it as a, as a space specifically for parkour. And I think I was there right when it opened. I was there a couple months later for the uh, quote-unquote grand opening. And then I've been back a few times since then mostly in the off season, unfortunately, when it's kind of cold. And, and what I think is that we were too successful at making the second concrete space not feel like a parkour park. So to go into that a little bit more, the site originally, the part of the reason that the city wanted to develop it was because it had become a place where people were camping, sometimes doing drugs, just hanging out, storing their stuff. And they felt like we, they needed some sort of way to activate that space with the community to, you know, displace undesirable activity, essentially. And what I've seen every time I've gone back to the site is that on the first area that reads as a playground, even though it's specifically not a playground, it's parkour park, right? right? There's it's it's empty of people living there. Like it's it's clear, people can use it, they'll come in, they'll exercise on it. On the other area that reads more like a plaza, there are tarps and tents it and back a lot of food. Too, right? Yep. Uh it very quickly hmm. and I my guess is that if someone is looking for a place to camp, they're going to be less likely to camp on a playground and more likely to camp in a plaza. And so I, I'm... Was the was the, the larger side that is more movement space, mm-hmm. play space, was that also being camped in? So both of the spaces were being used equally. I'm just wondering, like, you know, like, it's interesting, you know, if you actually displaced yeah. the undesired activity from one, I don't know where it went, but like, did it, you know, that way you'd say it's successful over here, but it wasn't successful. It's a little hard to say. I think part of it is that the side that has more camping on it right now is, is, um, they're all off ramps from the freeway, but there's, there's a passageway where people in cars will come and stop and so there's panhandling on that corner uh, so i think there, i think there are some other aspects to why yeah, there are other that might be a little bit more interesting or, or appealing to people than the other side but that's just something that that re- has really stood out to me every time i've gone there is like okay this place doesn't feel like a like a place that i would want to hang out and train with my friends you want to show up with your lunch do you think that if you had, and I'm not saying any of this is your yeah. fault, but do you think that if if you had, and how would you know to do this? Um, well, did they did they reveal any of that? Did they say like this is what's going on in the space now, and we'd want to? Yep. So do you think if you had, I'm wondering how much time you spent there beforehand trying to get a read of what they were using it for? So were you actually thinking, okay, I need to design this to displace this activity? Yeah, we walked the site, and that was part of the the brief that the GGLO got, and and they were also involved in another site on the other end of the giant freeway overpass area mm-hmm. right in the middle of these two places is a is a huge parkour park or not <laughs> sorry a huge skate park wow. there's a there's a really world-class skate park they hosted the x games a few years ago and that takes up the bulk of Rhodes park and then the parkour thing is on one end cap 
and this sculpture is on the other end cap. And the sculpture specifically, like the the ground plane under the sculpture is jagged rocks hmm. for the specific reason that you can't sleep on jagged rocks. So no, I mean that was that was clear that 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 was part of the the reason for developing this this site with an active use um, was to try to to bring in a community that would that would occupy the space. So the the other thing that I'll say about it that that I think I think if we had ended up painting originally we were we had specified that the concrete shapes would be painted different colors they ended up not doing that i think they ran out of money or it, things get cut yeah and so it's all concrete and it there's no vibrancy to it there's no vibrancy to it there's tons of color there's these amazing murals that we were not involved with that were are painted on the bridge abutment behind the i think i saw those in the, the i looked at pictures yeah. of the project very and I think striking I saw it. it was like this is clearly a play space and an activated place yeah yeah, well, so so that's that was my experience of Rose Park, and, and I hope that kind of answered of, of how that space changed after putting it in, and, and how people are are using it. And then the other park is Penzer Park, which is the timber place in right. in uh, Langley. People listening need to look these up. They're really visually striking, visually very different. Yeah, it's a, it's a very different design different visual language and, and just a very different site. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Boise park reads extremely urban. It's under a bridge. <laughs> right. It's all concrete. The plant there's, there are plantings around, but it's just, not there's much. not that it's much the, you can it's do. A, it's it's a weather light. shadow, right? Yeah. Penzer park. It's a multi-sport park. So it's in a residential neighborhood in Langley, which is a suburb of Vancouver, BC. And within Penzer, they have a, a, bike skills park, like a mountain bike park that was existing. They built a, a skate park slash pump track, mm-hmm. not a traditional plaza skate park, but more of a, of a sinuous track that you can ride mm-hmm. uh, with different wheel vehicles. They have a nature playground and then they have a multi-sport court, I guess. So like a place where you can play soccer, basketball on the same mm-hmm. uh, area. And then they have the parkour park. And so there's a lot drawing people to the site. The thing that it doesn't surprise me, but what what I noticed on Penzer is the amount of kids, especially young kids, who use the parkour park. Mm. So <laughs> it's something that I've heard parkour athletes complain about. <laughs> in Uh-oh, regards to Penzer would be required. Penzer would be cool if there if there weren't like 300 kids on it all the time. So, moving obstacles, get over them. Yeah. <laughs> I conceptually get over them, not literally get over them. Victim of its own popularity a, l- right. a little bit, but that's that's anywhere, right? So you've been back to that one, of course. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering when you go back and you see, when you see like, you know, 300 kids climbing on it, I'm guessing that's energizing, but also like, oh, it didn't quite land the way I thought it was going to land. I did not design it with for kid use in mind, but I knew that that would be how a lot of people would experience it. So no, I, I think overall I'm, I'm happy that it's getting use. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think it's important to acknowledge as we build spaces for parkour that the parkour community is small 
and the amount of people who will train at a space and specifically say, I'm a parkour athlete and I'm going to go find this parkour park and do parkour in it is, is, is a pretty small yeah. part of the population. So, you know, it's, it's significant, but we are a niche sport. Right. And if you're building a public park, you have to think like, who else is this going to serve? Right. And I think that a well-designed parkour park compared to something like a well-designed skate park has the potential to serve a lot of populations. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? Who who kind of just happen upon it and and will use it for fitness or will experience it as a aesthetically interesting space, mm. wander through it, be entertained by it. Do you ever do you ever go back to spaces and like I'm wondering like how deeply you like recycle the thoughts and the ideas from the park. So like, like you go back to Penzer and look at like the wear patterns to see whether mm-hmm. people are using the space. Like I'm, I'm assuming yep. you, you visualize the space entirely. And then you do actually go back and like, see, are they using the, the lines and the ideas that I think I built in? Yeah, that's especially true. With Penzer's Penzer was big. It's a, it's 10,000 square foot park and there's a lot of stuff going on. And I had, about three weeks to design it. <laughs> it's a very, very tight turnaround. A couple of hundred lines is the limit um, of what you can think of, right? Yeah. Well, and, and so, like, I, I kind of had it broken apart into different sections with different themes. Everything touches everything else. Like, I, I don't, I don't really believe in like here's the precision area right. and then here's the vault area. Um, I think that everything should integrate, but. I can go back and, and yeah, look at the wear patterns or just see how people are using it and say, like, this was a successful idea and this was not a successful idea. And I don't want to, like, d- dwell on this too much because I can't, like, point to... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you well, had a visual yeah. companion yeah. guide, I could say, this kind of sucks. <laughs> like, nobody... There's a section to the... Oh, I don't even know Oriental. So there's a corner of the park that just didn't really work mm. the way I had envisioned it it occasionally sees some use, but it's not as exciting as, as other parts. Specifically the, if you've been to the site, there are 12 by 12 inch cedar timbers, square timbers, and they're also eight by eight. Most of the park is eight by eight. There's a 12 by 12 section. And I think that section of the park is the most successful, just like as one element that's like, wow, that really worked, worked for all kinds of people. A lot of people are climbing on it. It really integrates and flows well. Hmm. Four inches makes a difference, apparently. Something about something about the appearance of this is a walkable plank as, as opposed to like a, yep. a one-foot-wide path you can walk just normally, but eight yep. inches, you're either, you have to be in line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the experience of touching the material is different when you can't kind of get your hand all the way around it. Mm-hmm. That, that That's like a platform at, at some level, like you said. You can mm-hmm. walk on it. I think the visible mass of something like that is appealing. Yeah. Just, you know, I think a lot of parkour people, definitely myself included, have developed kind of a love for material. Yeah. Like we go around and touch stuff. Texture. Yeah. There's a a massively tactile element. (laughs) And that like, it really worked to have these big, timbers that you can see the how they've split you can see the yeah, movement of the weather. wood yeah. we've kind of shaped them and and rounded the edges it's just it's nice to interact with those mm-hmm. in the way that i think they're 
definite disadvantages to wood compared to something like concrete, but they're also just, there's just this innate loveliness to it. Yeah. It, it calls to us like inherently people are woods more interesting. It's generally going to be warmer. It's going to react to temperature changes more quickly. The sun falls on it. It warms up faster, lower thermal mass. It's also of the environment, like the, all of the cedar, it's all yellow cedar. All of the yellow cedar came from Vancouver Island. So mm, the local, Oh, local. Yeah, so that yellow cedar is particularly striking. I, I was wondering about, when I looked in the photos, I'm like, that is, that isn't stained, but it has, but I understand because I've, I've seen yeah. on Vancouver Island, there's a construction tangent. There's a construction. I have a friend, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's a construction style that's traditional to the people who live there originally. And they take, the whole tree mm. and they have a way of the person who, uh, whose house it was that explained it, but like right over my head, somehow they, they have to fell the tree and then there's a time process. It can't be too long after they strip the park off the mm-hmm. tree and then they um, somehow seal them. So it, it's these golden yellow tree trunks mm-hmm. that they then erect in the middle of the building naked and exposed. Yeah. And that holds the upper rafters and, it has that same color, and I'm like, oh, it looks like they were stained. But now, I'm, now I'm like, yeah. oh, duh, Craig, it's that tree, you know. Well, and, it, and it's it's interesting because it, it's also the other thing about wood is that it changes over time, and that beautiful yellow color outside will not last. Yeah. And that's part of it is that you can see as something ages, it ages to gray. Uh, the UV is what does it, and so eventually you end up with this site which which has its own beauty because it's beech wood at that yeah. point. Um, is it anywhere near the water, or is it? No, no, I wouldn't describe it as coastal. <laughs> I mean, it's it's as near the water as Pacific Northwest. Right. Like everything's kind of near the water, but but no, it's it's not. What's I'm curious as to what your process is in the sense of if you're thinking of a potential project, is it do you sit and think and like ruminate over different? You know, you're like going through the mental scrapbook of all the ways that you could find something that fits in the space, or are you a pencil sketcher, or do you like just CAD the crap out of it, mm-hmm. or or do you go out and physically train and move? I had somebody once say to me that he used to think in order to create movements, and then he later realized that it works better if he moves and it creates thoughts. Yeah, I'm just wondering like what your creative process looks like, literally. Yeah, it's constantly changing and, and hopefully getting better. So I, I just a week ago started a master's in landscape architecture program at University of Washington. And that's, that's all I'm already getting ideas from that. And and then I think it, my process also changed in talking to Caitlin Pantrella, who's the current ED of Park Revisions, who is trained as an architect. So when I did Rhodes, the Boise Park, which I want to emphasize, like I did not do that alone. Tyson worked on that park with me and, and GGLO, like they did the details. Ultimately it was their project we were on as consultants. That was probably my most limited scope for any park. But in in the end I did draw the bars I said, this is where these go. This is where the walls go. And when I did, when I did that project, this is going to kind of go on a little bit of a tangent, but I think it'll get back. Tyson and I had this idea (laughs) before we had ever built a parkour park that, Parkour was so great that if you built a parkour park anywhere, it would be awesome. Just like any site, because we hadn't done one, seemed impossible to get someone to allow us to do it. So yeah, under a bridge, like in an alleyway, like (laughs) who cares? We'll just build it. It'll be great. And so designing roads, I didn't give a shit about the plantings or the site and how it looked really. I was just like, give me 
as many square feet as you can possibly give me to put bars and stuff in because that's the that's the value i'm just gonna pack pack this space with parkour junk and my thinking has evolved since then i had a conversation with are you familiar with street movement yes michael um, regard (laughs) intimately with the guys and the gear and denmark yeah So I had I had an interesting conversation with Mikkel this spring when I was in Copenhagen, and he was talking about the tension in a parkour park between density and navigability, and that was fascinating to me, and that and that kind of moved my thinking a little bit. Density is incredibly important for parkour design. I think variety, density. Are, are just variety density material are just like the key elements of what makes a parkour space interesting and, and fun. But you can, you can go way too far on both of those really easily. And, and you can, again, I wish I could point to examples, but you can look at, at parkour parks from around the world and you can see where they have, where they have turned the dial too far on density or too far on variety and come up with a space that's that's visually jumbled or that doesn't pull you into it. Well, now you're talking about creating an artistic installation, which yeah. is probably a good thing. Well, well, and I think that we, as parkour people, we underestimate how important it is for us to train in a space that's beautiful and that that works in a traditionally architecturally or artistically good sense. I, I think of just like, you can probably think of examples of this in, in your own life, but you know, think of a spot that is very simple and that is a place that you enjoy training because mm-hmm. maybe it's under a nice tree or yeah. it's by the water or it has grass around it. I just have a, an image in my head of this little, this little rail box around a access panel mm-hmm. It's a two-foot-high rail, eight feet by four feet in a box. It's the simplest spot you can imagine. But it's by the water at, at the university. There's moss and grass around it. And I would, I would happily train there instead of, like, a way more technically interesting spot that was right by a freeway with cars driving by. And So uh, the risk of putting ideas in your head. So is it the... In those two cases that you're talking about, is it the density that sort of maybe clutters your thinking? And if you're in a space that's less dense, then your your mind sort of calms down. Yeah, I mean, that's the parkour you, athlete. You I'm thinking. create the like you sort of respond to what's there and what's not there. And so, if you think of again, uh, this is another street movement design, but uh, street mecca in. Copenhagen is a famous spot. There's a, if you picture it, it has a concrete shape that looks like a ruined building almost. It's on a red safety surface circle. It's under a tree. And the three walls in the front, what I would consider the front of that, are very simple and just dimensioned beautifully. The space between them, the height of the wall, the thickness of the wall, those are very simple elements. But you can go on Instagram and see how inspiring those three walls have been to so many people 
that's an example of a of a very restrained parkour Aesthetic, spot yeah. that is that is successful because of how restrained it is. So to to loop back my, my I think now when I when I start a design, it's much more important for me to say like what am I what is this overall space trying to communicate? What do I want someone's experience of this space to be? as they see it, as they pass by it and don't interact with it, or as they interact with it either through parkour or through general play mm-hmm. and coming up with that concept and then, a, and then a visual concept of, of like, what is, what do I want that space to look like? What do I want the impression to be? And then once you have that, it's not hard to build cool connections between obstacles like that's the easy part it's, it's yeah the hum- engineering challenges are really minimal it's just people it's not yeah heavy, heavy wear heavy duty and we you know you have a sense or, or i have a sense now of of how far different people jump and and how i can create a gradient of challenge throughout the park so that you can see the same type of movement that's small and close to the ground and then a little bit further a little bit higher up a little bit higher up a little bit further those i think those challenges i think now are are easier than than answering like how do i how do i make a a sculpture essentially you're talking about sculpture at that point that that fits with a site and and does a specific thing accomplishes a specific concept so that comes from sketching and right. comes from uh, so you, you sketch them physically and yeah I mean, ultimately I'll, they're probably cad drawn because you got to hand them to a builder right yes eventually it goes i use sketchup pro right. uh, which can export to autocad so yeah, without without going into the the technical details necessarily of like what what the eventual deliverable is because yeah. that changes by project. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll draw. Have you ever gotten pushback from like so somewhere down the road? There's a dude with a hard hat pouring concrete, yeah. going, "What the hell yeah. is this?" Thing? <laughs> Have you ever gotten like feedback from those guys about? They probably don't push back. They, you you design it, we build it. But like, yeah. I'm wondering if they've ever, if you ever had a chance to talk to anybody who's physically constructed one of your sites and mm-hmm. what their experience of the site may have been. So like, a lot of those people who work in construction trades are really good at visualizing things, like you know, look yeah. at the plan and visualize yeah. the house. And I'm wondering if you ever had a chance to talk to any of them because they're very unlikely that they'd be parkour people. Yeah, if they've ever had an interesting experience seeing it completed. Yeah. So I mean the. The people who are designing, who built, sorry, who constructed Penzer Park, Marathon Surfaces, they're a Canadian firm. And I also worked with them on the latest park I opened, which is in northern British Columbia in Fort St. John. And in in both of those cases, you know, I was available. I wasn't on site throughout the build process, but I was talking to the contractors uh, as they to answer questions, shoot about, you a photo. Hey, what the hell? What's <laughs> going on here? Like, this was like you left off a measurement between these two things, right. and then I pull the model up and check that measurement. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I have a memory of talking to the lead, I don't know, foreman or or the lead builder right. on Penzer, and and him sort of saying like, "Man, I really didn't kind of understand what this was gonna be," or like. <laughs> why things were laid out the way they were when I was looking at this initially. Like, okay, well, I guess we'll, we'll drill yeah, the holes where he says to drill the holes, holes. and we'll put these things. 
And then he's like, yeah. And halfway through, I was like, oh, I get, I get it. it. Like, <laughs> he's not a parkour guy, but he's a, you know, he's a youngish dude yeah. who liked to climb around and, and he could, he could pick up on it, you know, uh, at that point. It's like, okay, I, I see where he's going with this. Uh, so that was cool. Cool conversation to have. Are there any materials that you either have had the chance to train on in life? You know, like I've, mm-hmm. I found this one spot and I really love it that you haven't had a chance to build with yet. Yeah. So I still want to work a lot more with metal than I have. Yeah, I um, saw Clippy. Is Clippy, yeah, Clippy's Clippy. pretty recent. Clippy's, yeah, Clippy was 2016, 2016. Mm-hmm. And there's a forthcoming park. This is, I'm excited about it because it's the closest one geographically to me that, that's being built in Bellingham, Washington right now that includes some Clippy-esque elements. Um, it, for those of you who <laughs> are not intimately familiar with my portfolio, uh, <laughs> Clippy is made out of, of five and a half inch diameter steel pipe that's miter cut. So it's cut at an angle and then welded together. And that creates, if you imagine the pipes screensaver from Windows 95, right. that oh, was the visual inspiration right. <laughs> pretty clearly. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll also, if people are like, what, wait, all this stuff will be in the show notes. People can like click on it and go see yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. photos that are on your website in the portfolio. So, so that's something that I'm excited to explore a lot more. That's round pipe. I'm excited to do elements like that with square pipe. One thing that I would like to try at some point because I love wood so much is to yet get a C channel. So like a, you know, imagine a square tube with one of the uh, faces removed and then bolt in decking, like thin deck strips of wood so that the surface that you would interact with would be wood where, but the everything else is this, incredibly structurally strong C-channel metal thing that you could weld and and bolt. So I've drawn out some concepts for that and and I'm, I'm waiting for a, for a project that will fit into the suited. So if you're in the sound of our voice, (laughs) you would like an interesting visual element to your project. Yeah. Yeah. That. And then I'm interested in, again, on the subject of metal, I'm interested in messing around with like rhino liner or truck liner like as a spray on resin that spray. makes surfaces, well, whatever they want, squishy or sticky or grippy. Or- yeah, very grippy and very durable and some crazy, crazy durable stuff. And yeah, because I'm, I'm, we always have slick rail, which I think is cool because you can slide on it and vault on it. But I'm, I'm interested to see what, what it would feel like, especially in an environment like this where it's so wet all the mm-hmm. time. If I could kind of like rhino liner a bunch of thick mm. bar or a bunch of, uh, a bunch of square bar, whether that would just be a kind of a, the ultimate all weather parkour space. So, uh, <laughs> rhino line the parkour park. Rhino line the parkour park. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's always more to do with wood. There's more to do with, I just did a design for a park in North Vancouver that uses more timbers because I like timbers and they like timbers and they're like, building me another park with timbers. But this one uses some timber joinery, which is just like, you know, like how you would put together a a barn, the the skeleton of a barn doing like half laps, half lap joints. And I'm, I'm interested in doing 
a really small piece like that that's almost a standalone sculpture around the size of Clippy, but but having all of the make you know make it out of eight by eight or ten by ten and have all of the joints joinery be done, visible. Right exposed timber joinery i think would be really cool have you ever had a chance to see in person how some of the ancient japanese construction is done where they put together entire buildings with no nails it's all these complex they're like tavern puzzle joints yeah. and they put like one peg in it yeah and it's like the whole thing is fixed have you seen that stuff i have not seen it in person i've only seen uh, images and videos yeah. of it i would i would like to so it sounds it. like you're finding that <laughs> type of aesthetic a little inspiring and it's um a pretty cool Way to put things I think it's it's very cool. There's a there's a sculpture in Seattle that I that I find really inspiring, and it's untitled, and I can't remember the name of the artist. Of course, it is, but it's near Volunteer Park, and it's metal, welded sheet metal, but it's this sixteen seventeen foot high monolith put together with mortise and tenon joints. But it's all made of metal, <laughs> right? Like, you know, picture that. Now you know, you're just it's, messing with us here. <laughs> no, it's it's crazy. Like, I I love it so much because it's it's the most primal. Primal is a little exaggerated. It's a very classic wood joinery, woodworking technique mm-hmm. put in this crazy huge scale and in a material that makes absolutely no, no sense. sense to do it. But it works. Like, <laughs> you know, he made these shapes and he stuck them together on site and it holds up and every side of it is a buildering challenge mm. because of the because of the joinery like produces these holds. holds what's your favorite surface to climb on like if you're out doing either climbing challenge or capping challenge or you know trying to do climb ups and, and things where you're forced oh. to interact with both your hands and your feet my favorite wall that i've ever climbed on is the velodrome spot in berlin which is the white wall spot. If you watch Min's videos, it's pretty recognizable. It's Berlin doesn't have a lot of <laughs> crazy good spots, but yeah, that one and that one's awesome. And the cool thing about those walls is that they, they're decently grippy on the feet, but the tops of them are slanted by about two degrees along the length of the wall. So if you get into a cat and you have your hands resting on the top of the wall, your fingertips will be lower than your, your first knuckles, mm. right? Just a just tiny overgrab. Just a tiny. It's not enough to feel it when you jump on it, but man, your climb-ups will just feel godlike. <laughs> <laughs> right, because you can generate pole friction you, perpendicular. Yeah, boom. yeah that's, that's an amazing wall. I like that. Tell me a little bit more about landscape architecture. And uh-huh. I think most people would think of landscaping as like plants, mm-hmm. but I'm betting that it's a lot more than just the the greenery and the biology of it. But can you just unpack a little bit about how that program, the types of topics it covers and how you're thinking that would inform, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but how you're thinking <laughs> that would inform your work in the future? Yeah. So landscape architecture is is like a pretty new field in the compared to something like architecture, which has, right. which has been formalized. Couple of and, weeks, and, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. On a, on a geologic time scale. And I think the, take this with a huge grain of salt because I am a week into the program and like just starting to, to read the theory. And I feel like if you ask me this in a year, my answer is going to be different, but, but landscape architecture is about making places for people to live and to spend time. And that's, that's what architecture is about too, but 
the scale that landscape architecture works on is much more telescopic. It's everything from one tree and the way that tree is shaped and placed all the way to the urban ecology of of an entire, you know, urban park or or neighborhood or or even like a wetland ecosystem. They they don't just work in urban contexts, although obviously that's my particular interest. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, just, just in a, in a functional sense, like practicing landscape architects, it's a professional degree and then you work for a while and then you can take an exam and be licensed to be a licensed landscape architect, legally call yourself a landscape architect. And there are pure landscape architecture firms. There are also what's becoming pretty common now are, are hybrid or multidisciplinary firms that will include architects, landscape architects, civil engineers, urban planners. Right. Really build an entirely integrated site. Yeah. And so that allows them, that allows firms to go after larger projects and say, you know, we're, we're not only going to do the building, we're going to do everything around it and, and we're going to deliver all these different things. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hugely varied field. People do everything from work for the National Park Service on how, how is Yosemite going to grow and change over the next 50 years to designing a pocket park that's 50 square yeah. meters something and is pretty situated in, in time and, and place. Um, so that's one thing that, that landscape architects do I think is interesting is, is think along, think about processes and think about timelines. If you were envisioning a park that involves trees, the way that park feels, the fundamental experience of that park is going to change dramatically from when those trees are put in as small saplings or juveniles to when they are mature trees. Like that's going to be a completely different space. And it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, you, you could do something, you could put in a project that won't really be done, done ever, right. um, but won't, won't really kind of live up to your ultimate imagination of it for 50 years. And the father of landscape architecture is Frederick Olmsted, who did Central Park along with a bunch of other things. And he was an architect and he was sort of dissatisfied with being called architect in chief of mm. of Central Park. It's like that's not what like I'm not building a a thing. Yeah, not like, building a building. Not right. building a building. Yeah, you're building a system that's going to change, and that's why you know I think one of the reasons why people like Central Park so much and point to it and refer to it is that it's so old at this point right. that you can see how design intent from yeah far ahead he was thinking right yeah the 1800s yeah. has is now kind of matured and changed and gone way past what he could have yeah. imagined just in case anyone hasn't been to central park in new york city there are there are lots of spots where the trees that are in several places street level there's a big wide sidewalk and then there's a like a huge it's probably granite really like heavy dense stone 
like a railing, but it's more like a balustrade. Like the top of it is like a foot wide. And then there's a drop on the other side. And there are trees that are in the park. Or when you look over the railing, there's terrain and things. And those trees grow up out of the park and shade the entire sidewalk and parts of the streets. And I'm wondering, like, I wonder if those trees were there. But I'm, I'm suspecting that he put all those trees in there. And they just came up and, like, the park reaches into the city literally over the thing. So I'm a yeah. big fan of trees. I don't climb trees as much as I probably should. But... I'm often spotted standing around looking straight up with my little yeah. iPhone trying to capture the wisdom of trees. Also, also Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, another old park. And I like, I had the experience a couple of years ago of walking through there with, with a couple of friends who are from the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, this is before I was studying landscape architecture, really thinking about it too much. And I just, assumed that this is what the land was always like here, you know, and they just put some trails in and, you know, plop some buildings down, right. some hand railings, and they're like, here, it's a park. No, it looked nothing, nothing like that. The trees that are there are new. It was sand, yeah. beachy area. That is, that park is intention, but it's so far removed from the act of creation that it has, and the intention was so good yeah, that it now just everything is, like I, I there. Everything is right. It's just yeah, like, just yes, this could this have amazing, been here, right? This amazing space. How did they find it? I'm so lucky that it's right here in this place where they wanted to be a park. Like, yeah. no, I, found it with a pencil it. and paper, right? Maybe. Somebody having this an idea. Incredible irrigation project. And I don't want to talk too much about this because I don't, I don't really have all the facts on it, but they pulled a bunch of water. Like they had windmills, I think, that were irrigating the land that became Golden Gate Park over 50 years or something. Like it was this massive terraforming project. Mm. And that stuff is so exciting. Mm. Even if even it doesn't have anything to do with parkour directly, I just I'm, Love it. Well, it seems to, I mean, I'm not, I had a roommate in college who was an architect student, so I got a little bit of like the architecture thing by osmosis, but there's something about the idea, and I, I just, it's like I've thought I've had two seconds ago. So something about the idea of, so human beings are ephemeral, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's short, you're here, you're gone. And the idea of being able to alter the landscape and almost to approach doing something on geological timescale it's almost like godlike to be able to say like, well, if we can literally, literally move mountains and yep. then we can literally like put them back. We're going to move this aside. We're going to take this metal from underneath and put the mountain back, put the trees back. And it's looked just like it was before we started. That's like a Promethean or, yeah. you know, and I'm just wondering, so I have two questions, that one, which would lead to if you, if you like, you know, if I gave you unlimited funding and mm-hmm. told you could have any piece of land anywhere and like build what you want where and what would you build, which is a bonkers question. Another one, which I'm having because I'm like a space science fiction geek yes. is like, Mars. Have, you ever, have you ever thought about trying to build a parkour park where the gravity coefficient was different? And like, <laughs> aside from like the, you know, what's his name of uh, the, what are the Martian Chronicles, uh, the character's name? Anyway, you know, aside from like having these giant 50 foot running precision yeah. slow motion happen, like what would, what would you, what would be the things you would want to do in a place where you could manipulate both the physics of the environment yeah. and the, I think it would be really fun to use like running jumps would be cool. I think a lot of swinging would be cool. I'm, I'm imagining like a, a very three dimensional, very vertical environment that used a lot of flexible bars, like a rubber constructed <laughs> bars so that you could kind of redirect yourself. And if you whacked into one, it wouldn't fade break away. your face. So I'd be into that. This a real, real swinging 
space. Did you just make that up on the spot? Or yeah. Is this like, no. Oh, I, like, I, I honestly haven't say, given a ton of fun. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, uh, what I'm partly fishing for is, like, how you think and the kinds of things you think uh, about. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's straight, straight off the top. But ideal site, I don't know. What's all right? Well, let's, what? well, okay, so well what's yeah, the site yeah. you've seen? My like, ideal oh, site is anywhere in Seattle. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> Get with the program. Honestly, yeah, before we'd ever built a park, we were like, okay, well, first thing we're going to do is we'll just volunteer our time. We'll get a parkour park down in Seattle. Little park, that'll be pretty easy because we're here. And then we'll go and we'll build parks in other places. Turns out that's the hardest thing in the world. What are the hurdles? Is it, I mean, obviously the politics, but is it the issue zoning or is the issue they don't understand what the space is for or? It's a big city. Like the, the bigger the city, the harder it is to get anything done on a reasonable time scale. So my, my guess is that unbeknownst to me, there's like parkour park is like percolating and bubbling up somewhere in Seattle city parks department. And in five years it'll pop and then they'll build somebody who's, yeah, some, it'll be somebody whose kid takes parkour and then the adult knows what it is. So it's kind of like a, it has to be a tipping point. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think the other thing that crossing my fingers will help is once the Bellingham park is up, then there will be Washington state precedent for a, signed specific parkour park and hopefully that will be be enough to to say oh yeah we can we can do that um it, it is new so like when you build a skate park when you don't when you build a playground when you build a piece of exercise equipment there is a corresponding astm standard just just like i don't know the american society of technical measurements. I'm getting that acronym wrong. It's a standards body. They publish standards and it's very helpful for purposes of due diligence for a city to be able to say, we have built this thing and we've built it to an ASTM standard. RFP is this standard, this thing, this space. In order to create a standard, you have to have precedent. You can't just create one out of whole cloth. You have to say, well, these guys did this, these guys did this. So this, you can see the chicken and the egg problem yeah. coming right now, right? There's, there but is no got, ASTM standard for got parkour like five equipment. chickens now, so, yeah, you know. The chickens are growing. Uh, so there, is, there are standards internationally. It's an mm. interesting thing. Like the UK has standards. There's EU standards, allegedly. I haven't seen them, but I, I, I hear they exist. And that does a little bit. Like yeah. we can say, well, these exist, but they don't really care. Right. So, you know, we're, well, all we can end up doing is saying, well, when I'm when I'm approaching a city uh, who's interested in a parkour park, and it it doesn't happen where I go out and say, "Can I build a parkour park here anymore?" Like yeah. they, they come to me, but I still often have to sell it at that point. They're interested in the idea, but I have to you know get there. So one thing that's really important is making it very clear what area is a parkour park and what area is not for liability reasons. Mm. So, you know, if you, for example, had a playground that was a real life playground. Yeah, standard then, five to 12 standard year old children. Five to 12 year old playground. And then you had on the same piece of safety surface, like a parkour structure, that would not be okay. Because someone could very reasonably say, well, I brought my kid to this playground that exist within these standards that are designed for safety. And then they wandered over to the parkour side, which climbed is built up eight feet with the railing. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Just like you wouldn't put a skate park bowl <laughs> in right the middle next of the <laughs> like I might, but okay. <laughs> I might too. Like uh the I'm tolerant of a much higher degree of of mixture risk and mixture, mixture and yeah. user groups clashing yeah. and figuring their differences out and, yeah. and training on each other's stuff. I like that idea. But that's we live in we live in America. We live in America. Indigenous society so, by nature. You know, d- define your space and then sign your space. So put up a sign that says, "This is not a playground. This is a parkour park," and that's that's a lot of what the so skate parks do have an ASTM standard. And one of the big things on that standard is a sign. You have to people have to know that. Yeah, you're going to hit and have a skateboard if you stand in this park, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's a, and and it, and also a defined space. So those are those are sort of the two big things, and then and then it's it's kind of project dependent, and it's it's interesting getting from the clients what elements of playground concepts they want to take, like okay, we're going to use a safety surface of some kind, and another big thing in playgrounds is how much of a border you have between the a structure and the edge of the safety surface. One of the elements of the playground standard that really gets in the way of building a parkour playground is the areas of separation, the fall zones between pieces of equipment. Yeah, you have to have six feet and they can't overlap. So that's 12 feet between these two structures. That's too far. Right. Yeah, there are people who can do 12 foot running prees, but that's, <laughs> well. <laughs> You know, five six percent of the parkour community, right. and zero percent yeah. of the average people walking by. Like you've just made a, a series of disjointed. Well, and then it doesn't read as as a movement. Yeah, invitation. So you, that's sort of thing number one is like we don't build playgrounds. Uh, sorry, we won't we won't build you a playground. It has to be called if you're going to have it be a distinct thing. It has to be called a parkour park. I think what going back to what what do you want to do that you haven't done yet? I'm very interested in multi use spaces, multi-use public spaces, which was also a thing that we, <laughs> Tyson and I thought back in the day would be really easy. We're like, oh, we won't, building a parkour park, that'll be a hard sell. But we can get people to say, here, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just put some railings in like this, and then parkour people can use them and fitness people can use them, and they'll still function as railings. We're like, that's a great idea, right? Save some money, like, get a multi-use space. No, that scares the shit out of people. Yeah. People are going to intentionally do what? No. Yeah. No. Oh no! Don't tell me that we want that you're gonna that you want people to jump over this thing because <laughs> yeah. then, you know, then we're complicit in it. Uh, so that's you know that's something that I want to push. I don't I don't think it's impossible. I think the the needle is moving pretty quickly on adult play, adult fitness becoming normalized, right? Becoming normalized and and just the idea that that a public space that is designed for multiple modes of movement is a better space. So that's something that I, I think is very unexplored. The in, intentionally building a found parkour spot. That's not a parkour park. Mm-hmm. Like that is, that's, a, that's a bit of a grail for, for me to, to get to work on. Um, and we've go, we've gotten close on a couple of projects that have then kind of dissipated. So, mm. but it's, it's coming. I think it's coming. 
So I, I could probably just sit here and talk about <laughs> parkour structures all day because I have the parkour bug. But I'm wondering, uh, maybe going a bit of a different direction, if you, I love to collect stories, like I just think sure. collecting stories. So I'm wondering if you think of a, a person or a few people that you admire, parkour, is parkitect a thing? <laughs> uh, did I just make a new word, a parkour architect? Uh, parkitects or regular landscape architects or just random people that inspire you in general? Uh, is there a story that you would want to share about somebody that you admire? One that I admire. Well, I already talked about Mikkel. I think that Mikkel Rugard and Street Movement as a company and as a design firm specifically, I have been very inspiring to me. And like, there was not a lot of precedent is instrumental in creating the idea of what a parkour park is and what it can look like and, and experimenting with those early forms. So yeah, definitely shout out to that. I also really like the designs of trace space, which is the design arm of parkour one in Germany. I uh, believe Min has designed some of those. I don't know if they have one lead designer specifically, but the stuff that they put they put together, they mix materials a lot, which yeah, I am I've interested in. I've seen a couple in. of like what I would call pocket parks, but they're a little bit mm-hmm. bigger than like your average teeny pocket park. And they have like the one I saw was like brick structures with also I think round timbers yep. integrated into it. Yep, they use a mi- they use. That's usually what I see from tra- the trace base sort of signature is red brick or yellow brick, some brick. And then some some round timbers and and they use a lot of like stainless steel bars, which are pretty <laughs> and expensive. Yeah, so I, I'm intrigued by by their designs. And then there's so many like I just it's hard to tell often where parkour parks have come from because they're so new and because there's not like a you know there hasn't been anything close to like industry consolidation outside of the <laughs> the UK where everything is made by by free move and so you have all these parkour parks that look kind of the same good and bad right yeah. has plus and and minus they've they've built you know 30 parkour parks right recognizable so, so easy to get municipalities to buy in yep. but also can become not saying they are but can become a little repetitive yeah but so because there's so little of that there there are all these examples that I'll see of parkour parks that don't look like anything else that I've seen. Cause it's just like some guy was in the right place and the city was like, all right, we need a parkour park. Hey, parkour guy work with this architecture firm to, oh, right. to put, the, you to to put together this yeah. thing. You don't yeah. have to be an architect. Yeah. I'm Something not an architect. like eight feet high with engineer. a bar on it. No, <laughs> like, you could just go in and if the city is bought in and if the architecture firm is bought in, Somebody will draw it for you and you can sit there and say, move that bar, move this bar. And so people come up with these crazy things. Mm. And I think that's really exciting. Like that's, that's where you can get cool ideas from people who I think you also end up with some spaces that sometimes don't quite work. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's part of it. Like, and, and I think parkour is a very forgiving sport in terms of saying that a space doesn't work. Like that's, yeah. It's hard. You might need to try a little harder if <laughs> you just want to walk away. It's hard to have a parkour park that doesn't work. You, oh, you can't move around in there. Uh, <laughs> and even thinking of lap set is the like parkour playground equipment. So it conforms, to the best of my knowledge, it conforms to European playground standards. But it's... And and I would consider it to be a, at least there. I, I hear they're coming out with more stuff that I haven't seen yet. But at least the the stuff that I've seen around, I would consider it to be a parkour themed playground as a part as opposed to a parkour park. You know, I don't 
love all of the decisions they've made. But, but if you think of it in the context of like, I'm walking around the city and I see a playground and if that playground was, if it was that, that one, you'd yeah, be I'll take it. So right. stoked. Yeah. Other than every other playground on the planet that I yeah. see, which is like eight, you know, five to 12. And then like as a 40 something yeah. guy, I can't go anywhere near that place. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. If you think of it in the context of like a custom parkour park, it's a little lacking or it's a little wiggly. They wiggle. That bugs me. Bugs me when you put together a parkour park in the bars. And it's not bomber, right? Yeah. But it's still like, oh man, so cool. <laughs> yeah. If you, uh, so let's, let's say, I think this is pretty obvious. Let's say you have the parkour park slash architecture slash building bug. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember when you caught the bug? Yeah. I mean, I had started to think about building. I started to think about what I would want in a parkour park in 2011. So I'm maybe going to get this wrong. I think the first, the first parkour park was, I believe, Geopark in Sweden. I'm throwing out facts that I'm not super sure on. Around 2009, I want to say. So parkour parks as a concept, only about 10 years old, which is nuts. And so I was like, oh, that's a thing. Like people are build those. Like what, what would I want? And it's interesting because I, I, I was looking through an old notebook and I saw where I had written out a little bit about this idea. And what I started with was, <laughs> was kind of what we were just talking about of like a public park that just so happens to have features that would make it really appealing for parkour people, but that anyone else walking through it wouldn't ever know. And I never, you know, never did anything with that, but I, I had written it out and it's interesting to look back at that now and be like, Oh no, like that, that's a little closer that was ahead to, of its curve, to where right? I've it's kind time. of come back to after exploring just like very utilitarian parkour spaces, very specific parkour spaces. So you mentioned that you were looking at an old journal. Do you journal regularly today and, and do you use it for like the self-reflective type of journaling or do you use mm-hmm. it for sketching or do you have both? I have a sketchbook. At various times, I've I've done kind of daily thoughts. I it just sort of depends on like what's going on. Like if I'm if I'm I don't know. I should probably be doing it now because like things are changing and I'm starting a school. It, it's it's I like being able to go back and read and see a record of my brain at a previous time. I think that's very valuable and it's impossible to do without writing. Right. Um... But I don't do it religiously and I get bored of it or I lose it or it goes away. But I have been, I have been sketching pretty regularly and I have a, I have a sketchbook. that's just my personal sketchbook. I don't put school stuff in it and I keep that filled, filled one of them. I started this like year and a half ago, I guess. So yeah, I, I, I keep a sketchbook now. I'm, I'm like interested in some of your inspirations from like orthogonal places. So like paint, like if you think about, other forms of art like painting and sculpture mm-hmm. and you know traditional architecture even things like arboretums or yeah. you know outdoor like the equivalent of a museum for plants have you ever found any of those other completely different mediums as like something that really struck you where you're like i was looking at a now i'm reaching here but like i was looking at a painting and the painting made me think of i had this idea or this emotion and then mm-hmm. that wound up in the sketchbook i'm just like wondering where you draw inspiration from, if you do, from outside the parkour and movement spaces? I mean, sculpture 
is uh, specifically like large form public sculpture is the is the best mm. place to look for inspiration on parkour structures i think with, without question there's a there's a sculpture in amsterdam called Grootlandschaft or something like that a great landscape mm. that looks like a it looks like a crashed plane almost it's on top of this mound and it's all made of welded corten steel formed into these organic blobs that are sort of cascading around each other mm. and i remember this is when i was in i was in amsterdam in march and i was walking around a lake park and i looked across the lake and i could see the mound and something on it and i couldn't see it very clearly but i knew that i had to get closer to that and i walked all the way around the lake <laughs> it took me like 45 minutes and then that that was the sculpture that was up there and it's so cool because you you slide on it the surfaces are pretty smooth and they're all rounded undulating and, right yeah and you can just like run up and like roll across one and you come out of the roll and you're sliding on your butt down and that's like i love that sculpture mm. um and that's that's super inspiring. I, you know, I haven't, I haven't put that into practice yeah, what do I do yet. That, but right. but like, um, that stuck. That stuck. Yeah. So yeah, I think look at look at outdoor sculpture. There's also <laughs> in Berlin. I wish I had the name of this sculpture too. This is in downtown Berlin. There's a semicircle. If you've <laughs> if you've played the game Halo, think of a halo cut in half, dropped on its on its side on the or no standing up on the ground so mm. so it's this arc that that is super high on one side i'm talking like a hundred feet right so the, the open the points are and, up yeah and then like 40 feet high on the other side and it's maybe eight feet wide maybe six feet wide and smooth it's steel and so you can run as hard as you can like you're doing a warped wall all the way, like not all the way up, but you can go pretty high until you can't run anymore. And then just (laughs) pancake yourself. Yes. Slap yourself onto the surface and slide all the way back down. Hmm. It's wild. I just like, (laughs) like, holy crap. So I, I love things like that. Like that's not a parkour sculpture, but it's a movement sculpture. Uh, It's, it's made to be touched. It's made to be climbed on and, because of its materiality and because of the way it's made, you can slide, which yeah, is like the scale is right that yeah, you can slide. It's these, these, these ways of moving that I think are, we have all these different tool sets for movement as, as parkour athletes that I think go way beyond what most people, the way most people move these different vaults and complex swings. And I think for, when you're thinking about, when I'm thinking about, like, how would I build a movement space that's that's for everybody? I'm thinking, okay, people like to slide. People like to swing. People like to jump, but not too far. And people like to balance. And to, to be able to put those things together, I think those are pretty fundamental and pretty accessible. The, the, the other thing I would add is people like to traverse. 
Yeah, like I'm, gonna a, get, I'm gonna go from one to the other, right? Yeah, like not a vertical vertical climb. People will do it, but it's scary. Uh, it's hard to put into an urban context right. well. But yeah, being um, able to go hand over hand across something like that, people get that very quickly. They get the balance if it's low enough, if it's easy enough, like a log. They get jumping, stepping stones, and then the sliding, like, yeah, there's so many things. Well, it's the closest thing to flying that you can get as a primate. Yeah, it accelerates you. Like, that's cool. So thinking about how can we put those movements in our public spaces and, and, and not just stick them in there, but actually, like, push people towards them and design the space so they are like intrigued to try those movements and, and implicitly given permission to try those movements. Cause that's hard mm-hmm. and we're taught to not climb on the mm-hmm. sculptures <laughs> generally. So the sculpture has to, has, I mean, in Berlin, they're always on, they're on sculpture, but it's not Berlin. So like, how do, how do you, how do you make your sculpture so that people will will feel okay climbing on it? Like they'll they'll enjoy it once they're on there, but how do you pull them into it and yeah. say like this is fine? Like come play with me, right? Yeah. So those are those are questions. There's so many things I can ask. I'm wondering. I've, I've been on a book bender recently. Not, not I mean in the podcast. I've been on a book bender mm. for a long time. But I'm just wondering if there are any books that people are thinking like, okay, this has kind of been a mind-altering conversation for me and I'm in this new space. Are there any books that you would think would be good gateway drugs? Not so. I'm not thinking so much for the, I want to become a landscape architect because yeah. that's really a more straightforward task. But I'm just thinking books that you have found maybe inspirational or books that you think align with the way you think that people could dig into. <laughs> not really. <laughs> <laughs> so there's your next project I'm, is to write yeah. the book. Sorry. I wish I had a better answer for that. I think, again, ask me again in a year after I've been forced to read some of these books that will be helpful to me. I, I haven't I haven't drawn a ton of inspiration for, a ton of design inspiration from books. Reading material. Yeah. It's all good. Actually, we haven't talked at all about, about your own personal movement journey mm-hmm. or your own, and, and yeah. maybe that isn't super interesting compared yeah, sure. to what we're doing, but... Yeah, I mean, briefly, like, I was talking to... Justin Sweeney, who's my my longtime friend and and now roommate, about this last night and and how I've sort of I've I've set up shop on my plateau. <laughs> like, <laughs> do you, you don't mind if I steal that? Yeah, for you? <laughs> this is my plateau, and I put out my you yeah. Know, I have a doormat, and I built yeah. a building, and my little parkour space over here. Um, it's just like I do not feel the need to push my movement practice in the way that I once did. I don't think I'm necessarily capable of it. I'm 30, but that feels very, I feel very comfortable in where I am as a mover. Mm -hmm. Like I think that there's, there's always progression and there, and there are always things that I'm like, I, I'm not going to hit this today, but I'm going to come back and do it. But it's, it's all sort of mindset and just like some days, some days you feel springy, some days you don't. And I can tell now like, Oh, this is not a, this is not a day when I'm going to do any big jumps. And some days I'm like, yep, it's it's time to go. 
So yeah, I, I mean, I started doing parkour in 2007. So it's been 12 years. <laughs> it's not as interesting as the design stuff. It's compelling to me. Like there's a reason I'm still here. Still here still doing <laughs> I'm still it. doing it. I'll say that I enjoy parkour my own personal practice of parkour much more now that I am no longer working in a parkour gym. And that's a common yeah, story. Too much, like, too man, much exposure, too much there exposure. all day, then that's work. And the context of it becomes a work context. Whereas now I go out and if I want to jump, I jump and it's just for me hmm. or maybe for Instagram, but <laughs> nothing wrong with sharing your journey. Yeah, no, that's no. fine. All right. Well, there's a, I don't know if you've listened to the episodes, but there's a question I always ask at the end, which is three words to describe your practice. Oh, <laughs> oh. practice in a very broad sense, huh? Yeah. Okay. We're, we're going to, okay. that's the first thing is in. So material. <laughs> yeah. So it's like when I hear practice, I'm like how I build or how I design, That's which is part of the power of the I, question is yeah, what does practice mean to you? Which, lo- you don't looping right back around to, well, I think this is where we started. It's, yeah. it's, I want to put this in the correct order, which I'm not sure. So you also welcome to like talk it out, but you don't have to, it have to be like, See, I mean, perfect. it's variety, density and material, but I'm not sure if it's material density and variety, you know, right. <laughs> like how, how that, how that order goes. I think it's material first. I think it's the, the that's the it's 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 material variety density. Yeah, three words to describe my practice: material variety density. Thank you very much, Colin. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. This was episode sixty nine. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash sixty nine. There's more to the Movers Mindset Project than just this podcast. Visit our website for more free content to join our email list, or to read about how you can support this project. And I'll leave you with a final thought from George Washington. I hope I shall possess firmness and virtue enough to maintain what I consider the most enviable of all titles, the character of an honest man. Thanks for listening.